Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. That's the explicit words of Psalm 26, 8. And amongst the Psalms, so often David was thankful, so much in an attitude of gratefulness for the capability of assembling and gathering. And certainly in this present New Testament age, how much more blessed are we? He lived and died long before Jesus, of course, ever came to this earth, and yet even he was thankful for the opportunity to gather. And I know that I stand before an audience that certainly feels just as thankful as he did. As you probably have noticed on the title of the lesson tonight, Time and Jesus' Birth, and we're going to basically give a spotlight looking at an element of the historical aspect of the birth of our Savior. And along the way, we're going to ask some very directive and some very personal questions about the details of that event. As you might well notice, though, there are two parts to that title, and we'll take the first one first. These introductory thoughts will, in fact, promote us or at least get us going into that consideration. A few weeks ago, we involved ourselves in a series of lessons on the Sunday evening sermons. They were all taken from the book of Daniel, and really it was an overview, a chronological consideration of the future events of the world as revealed in the book of Daniel. We found the various empires as God foretold their existence, and we even identified that they did come to pass exactly as God had said they would. Not only that, many of their details or features were highlighted as well. I believe we reach impressed very much so with the, the details and the specifics of that series of lessons. In a way, this lesson tonight, and perhaps the one next Sunday night, will be a continuation of that thought as it looks specifically at Jesus' birth and His death. Tonight, as we give thought to His birth, could I ask, I wonder what year Jesus was born. Do we know? Is there a way to extract that information based on not only those events of the book of Daniel, but also the events as they're related to you and me in the New Testament? Tonight, their study will in fact point us into that direction. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, the designation of time, though, will be a part of our lesson, and so that'll be the first part of our study, and let's turn our attention to that immediately. Time. We each, of course, live in this arena, this sea of ever-flowing forward time. We understand so well time doesn't seem to run backward. It does not look into the past, it looks into the future. It's not something that points us into things growing younger, they grow older. There is a direction to time. And yet you and I know that the human family has learned to make use of references to pinpoint features and details in it. Think about the calendar that you and I turn to and look at. A calendar that maybe at the top of it says 2016. I wonder what that number means and from whence did it come? Well, consider the following thoughts on this slide. You and I know that the human family, as we look at the considerations of time, there is this usage of B.C. as well as the usage of A.D. That phrase B.C. means before Christ. And it, of course, is used to designate those particular years or those events that transpired prior to the coming of Jesus. You may well appreciate, though, that as you use that, it allows you to pinpoint or to look with some specificity on when a particular event happened. I used a couple of very quick examples. First of all, think about, let's say, when the Persians defeated the Babylonians. 
539 B.C. So 539 years prior to the coming of Christ, you appreciate then that that particular event took place. Or as another example, you and I could with confidence say that David ruled as king of Israel in 1000 B.C. So 1,000 years before the coming of Jesus, David was reigning over the kingdom of Israel. Again, you could continue that series of thoughts, but keep in mind, to think about B.C. that way, that means the numbers run backward from your perspective and mind. Numbers count down as you look at B.C. Here's a map that illustrates that, or at least a picture. Look at the top, if you would. As you start reading that timeline from left to right, first of all, there's 3,000 B.C., and then further to its right is 2,000 B.C., and then 1,000 B.C., and so forth. The numbers count backward. You see, the actual living of Jesus in the flesh is a center point to this. Those dates prior to Him count downward to the reality of His coming. But that, of course, means let's go back to the previous slide and talk about what A.D. means. And then we'll return to this and look at the right-hand scene for just a moment. A.D. For quite some time, there's been at least a little bit of misunderstanding amongst the, the general population. Many think that A.D. means after death. That's not what that means. A.D. is Latin for Anno Domini, and it means in the year of our Lord in the year of our Lord. And therefore, we appreciate that in the year of our Lord, the very nature of the calendar, the numbers that are used with respect to it, they are all centered around the coming of Christ, the nature of His life, A.D. And therefore, if we were to refer, let's say, to the fact that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., then again, that pinpoints the year, or at least the time frame, in which that event took place. In addition to that, we could mention others as well. In 324 A.D., Constantine became the sole emperor of the Roman Empire. In the year 1776 A.D., the United States of America was formed. We get the idea. But as we look at all of those particulars, might we again keep something very interesting in mind. Whether it be B.C. or whether it be A.D., those numbers before counted down to the coming of Jesus, and all of these numbers being used since refer back to the reality of His being here. Let's go back to that previous picture again. Doesn't that highlight then that Jesus, this monumental figure to which you and I turn our attention in such a loving and powerful fashion, He is the centerpiece of time. Those events prior to His coming pointed forward to His coming. And those events that have happened since are built on the fabric and reality of the fact that He came. Oh, what a debt we owe to the coming of the Christ. He has transformed everything, at least in the directive of where God would have wished it to be. You'll notice then as you look at the very bottom, just one example. You and I know well that we live in the United States of America and our founding fathers in many ways had a keen appreciation of the importance of God, the fabric of Christ, and the nature of what society ought to be based upon the reality of Jesus and the truth of the Bible. I'm reading now from a portion of one of the founding documents of our country. In convention by the unanimous consent, 
the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord. That's in Article 7 of the Constitution of the United States of America. Our founding fathers embedded, or at least appreciated that, that year, the year 1787, it was the year of our Lord. They understood Anno Domini. They understood the nature of naming these particular years by virtue of the coming of Christ. Even our Constitution has that very statement within it. Maybe it's in light of those things. We can again revisit that previous slide and look at two comments at the bottom. It has not gone unnoticed that the calendar you see seemingly has a direct reference to Christ. Atheists and others who are less than enthusiastic about the matters of the Bible clearly in many cases don't have a great sense of support or encouragement for years labeled like that. And so you'll notice another scheme, it seems, recently has become to be used much more often. Maybe you've encountered it in articles or perhaps particular documents that you've read. This labeling of CE and this labeling of BCE. CE means common era. BCE means before common era. Notice they're trying to take B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini out of things and refer to it as B.C.E. or C.E., hopefully removing, at least in some sense, any reference to the nature of the great Jesus, the Son of God. I'd submit to you that's tragedy. It seems that's so unfortunate. But at least you and I can be aware that that's what at least many directives are attempting to accomplish. It may be in light of those things as you and I think about time in that way. And the characteristic of Jesus and His coming, it brings us to the development of the calendar that you and I use. I thought we'd consider this briefly because it will lead us to the last portion of our study time tonight. The calendar. You and I use it almost without thinking. We pull up perhaps on our phone or a computer or one hangs on the wall in our house or apartment, and it says 2016. It may even not have A.D. upon it, but next year it'll say 2017 if God permits this world to stand. One by one, as you look at all those things, it points us to this reality. Human beings are in need of using a particular event as a reference point for the determination of these events in time. That's not a difficult concept to understand. The Bible writers use it often. For instance, in Amos 1, verse number 1, when you and I begin reading the book of Amos, we notice Amos dates the events of that particular book two years after the earthquake. A reference to a great earthquake occurred, and Amos used that reality in order to cement in the minds of those who were his readers the fact of when these events were taking place, two years after that very memorable and notable earthquake. You and I today don't have a lot of knowledge about what earthquake he was talking about, but to his readers that was easily understandable. That's not the only, though, kind of event that from time to time was employed. In Haggai 1, verse number 1, the second year of King Darius... And the events of that book thus transpired. Quite often, the beginning of the reign of a certain king was a rather notable event. And quite often, events then were dated in terms of in relation to whatever year it was in the reign of that king. 
Same thing happened in Daniel 1 verse 1. It was the third year of King Jehoiakim. As you and I think about those events, isn't it isn't surprising today that our calendar is based on some event in time to which the human family has agreed. As you and I notice that, the event to which you and I refer is none other than the coming of Jesus. I believe we'd each agree that it is a momentous thing to consider all of time as based around the coming of Jesus. It's no wonder that atheists and others who don't believe in God and who cause question in relation to the Bible, the coming of Jesus, have had problems accepting the nature of the calendar as you and I now have it. The calendar points to the reality of a great one that came, and he came 2,016 years ago. Who was this great being? You and I know well who he was, the very Son of God. And our calendar is a testimony to the fact that he came. It is a testimony to the fact of his greatness, his deity, his messiahship. You'll notice, furthermore, some of these issues. Now the question might well occur to you and me. So the Bible doesn't tell us in so many explicit words the year, if you please, that Jesus was born. So what human figured that out or what shall we say to the way in which it, that was determined? We'll need to go back in history. In the year 525 A.D., the Pope at the time gave orders to one of the monks that he wished for a rather standardized and clearly recognized table be made that would represent when Easter would occur. Sometimes it was called a table of Easter's. Each year, they wanted to have a knowledge as to when the Easter would occur. Now, you and I know in the Catholic Church that Easter is a very important thing. You and I also understand that in course of time, that, that holiday has become exceedingly important to many around the world. And hence, a monk named Dionysius began to determine that table of Easter's, but to do so... He needed to use some kind of basis as reference upon which the years could be tabulated. He chose to tabulate it based on Jesus Christ. So Dionysius needed to determine what year was Jesus born. He made the determination you can see on that slide. He assigned the birth of Jesus to the year 1 B.C. And that, of course, is reasonable, isn't it? So if Christ came, then that means starting in 1 A.D., that would then be and O Domini, the first year of our Lord, and so forth. The question now comes as you and I look at the bottom. This would be a great time for us to pause to note the following. Jesus Christ really existed. I know that there have been many, and no doubt you perhaps have discussed with others, who at least have some question. Is Jesus just a mythical figure that perhaps was a very good person, but the nature of his being has been elaborated through the years. Was there ever anybody with all the attributes that the Bible gives to this man? The answer is an overwhelming yes. Jesus really walked this planet. He really did live here. And not only that, he lived here in flesh and blood. He lived here as a human being. He did so perfectly. He did so, though, facing the temptations that you and I do. He really lived here. I understand that when thousands of years in time pass, 
Sometimes when something that long ago happens, perhaps it's easy for human thinking to become fuzzy and uncertain. Did he really leave? I've simply asked you to notice a few brief comments. First, you and I know this book testifies that he did. It tells us so many details about how he lived, where he lived, how he preached, how he spoke, and the kind of lifestyle that he had. But not only the Bible. There are non-biblical writers, secular writers as I have labeled them. You and I could discuss at length the rest of the night various writers who have made reference to the fact there was a Jesus of Nazareth. He went around doing amazing things. That's what they'd call miracles. He could raise people from the dead. He could heal the sick. This was a remarkable man. Writers like Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny, and others Notable historians, they documented the fact Jesus really lived. And so those individuals, perhaps like agnostics or atheists or others who at least question it, who are uncertain, if only they'd give some passing thought to both the Bible references as well as to those rather highly regarded non-biblical references, Jesus really lived. Doesn't that highlight the fact that the God of heaven did in fact send His Son, just as John 3.16 tells us, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He really did come. No wonder in light of those things, notice some of these additionals. There are many records of individuals who were willing to die because of Jesus. They would give up their life when they were threatened and persecuted, they readily gave up their life in defense of that one. Would they have died for a myth, a fable, a made-up story? Would they have died for somebody that never existed? And you and I see the record of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. With such power and majesty, he preached the greatness of not only an Old Testament sermon, but he reached in verse 52 and following the record of Jesus of Nazareth you'll notice that they finally picked up rocks and killed the messenger. Here was a man who was happy, it would seem, at least under the duress of the moment, to give his life in defense of the one who he knew had lived and who he knew was still alive. No wonder when Stephen was dying, he looked up and said, Lord, receive my spirit. Acts 7, verses 59 and 60. Maybe in light of those things, it brings us then to notice this reality of the fact that Jesus lived. It is an overwhelming thing, isn't it? Human time based upon the coming of Jesus. Human time that points back to that reality. Haven't you been amazed at the record of Apollos in Acts 18 verse 28? The very closing verse of that chapter when on that occasion as Apollos, Apollos, was able to preach with such power, it says, he publicly demonstrated and showed that Jesus was the Christ. He was able to prove it. What about you and me today? When someone has a question or a doubt, can you and I take the Word of God and prove to them, or at least dispel the absolute confidence in their own mind, doing the very things spoken of in 1 Peter 3.15? But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Apollos could do it and may you and I desire to be able to do the same and longingly be able to accomplish it. 
as we think about this matter of, of Apollos, you and I now appreciate that because Jesus did leave, we know the record of the Bible is He was born of the Virgin Mary. He really did come into this earth. I wonder what year that happened. Do we know? Now, a moment ago, we noticed that Dionysius assigned it to 1 B.C. Let's see if he was correct. The next few pieces of information come to us from the reading that was read in our hearing a moment ago, as Joey read from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. As the events of that chapter unfolded, we are taught very clearly that there was a resident king, a leader, a monarch named Herod. He was a ruthless man. He was a very wicked man from all the evidence that we have. In fact, you and I remember that in that chapter, he was so hasty and so intent upon preserving his own kingship that he asked the wise men where this king of the Jews was supposed to be born. And they quickly, understanding the prophecy of Micah 5 verse 2, said in Bethlehem of Judea. They were aware of what the Old Testament prophets had foretold. And so, Herod made the statement that he too would wish to worship the king of the Jews. We each remember that when he recognized that they were not going to come back and tell him anything, he sent out a decree that those little babies were to be slaughtered. Can you imagine killing little babies, all in the selfish interest of preserving what you perceive to be your own kingship? We are told in... Matthew 2, verses 15 and following, that Herod was that ruthless. Somewhat interesting to notice the actual rendering of the verse. Many times you and I are under the impression it was only the baby boys that he killed. The Greek text doesn't bear that. Apparently he killed baby girls too. When we dip back into the scene of the Old Testament, maybe we confuse that in our mind with what happened at the birth of Moses. His parents attempting to conceal him... And you remember that there was death of the baby boys on that occasion, but this time it apparently included both boys and girls. Herod was a mean man. At this point, might I ask you to notice, we know very well when Herod died. The overwhelming evidence points to the following. Herod the Great died shortly before Passover in the year 4 B.C. That much is well appreciated, but put that together with me in your mind. Dionysius, that monk a moment ago, asserted then that Jesus was born in 1 B.C. But you and I realize that won't work with the biblical narrative, will it? We understand very well there apparently is a little bit of a problem, an issue in light of this matter. It would seem that Dionysius made the wrong assertion as to the year that our Master was born. Can you and I use the next few moments to attempt to perhaps put some of those matters in better order? May I submit to you, perhaps we could start like this. One of the things you and I studied a few weeks ago as we looked into the very character of when Jesus was born, we learned a little bit about when that was. May I basically bring that back to our recollection we know that de December the 25th is that day that's been set aside for the supposed birthday of Jesus. But you and I, upon studying Luke 1, verses 5 and 6, we found that that seems very much to be highly unlikely. In fact, we reached this conclusion. 
it seems overwhelming that he was born either in late September or early October. As, we, as you and I studied that, we dipped back into the days of David and appreciated that because Zechariah was of the course of Abiah, we could figure out in detail the very events that I've listed on that slide. Again, late September or early October. Now, it is with that in mind. What would that, was, would that suggest? Putting back the scene into this Matthew, the second chapter. We remember again that Herod was interested in where the king of the Jews was to be born. Apparently, again, the information in regard to the wise men, it was very close at hand. So if we then appreciate that Herod died in the spring of 4 B.C., that seemingly would suggest Jesus likely was born either in late September or early October in the year 5 B.C. At least it would seem to point very strongly to, the, to that particular idea. If we at least consider it like that, notice what that says. That says that this calendar that we use in terms of assigning the date of Jesus' birth is amiss by about four to five years. Born in 5 B.C. Maybe it is with that in mind. What would that say about some of those other very special events that you and I see within the pages of the New Testament? For instance, when Joseph and Mary took Jesus up to celebrate the Passover... The beginning of that Feast of Unleavened Bread, when he was 12 years old, you'll notice that would have occurred in the year 9 A.D. Isn't that interesting? Consider yet another one. In Luke 3, verse 23, you and I are told explicitly that Jesus began to preach publicly when he was about 30 years, age, 30 years of age. That would mean that roughly we can remember Jesus turned 30 in the fall of 26 A.D., now, putting those in mind, you and I will ask in the next lesson as to what that would say about His crucifixion. What about the death of Christ and what year might that have occurred? However, there's more that we need to say tonight about the very events of His birth and the events that perhaps attach to the next slide as well. Perhaps by this point, you've already begun to wonder. Daniel set before us by the way of God's chronology delivered to him an amazing appreciation. You might want to revisit in your mind the closing few verses of Daniel chapter 9 with me in your mind. God revealed to Daniel that the history of the Jewish people was going to surround a topic of 70 weeks. He said, first of all, there will be a number of weeks, seven of them in particular, in which Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Then there will be 62 weeks. Following that, you appreciate one final week. Now, as you and I think about those things, we studied along that line and learned that those 62 weeks plus the seven previous 69 total weeks would bring us to some 483 years. That 483 numbered from the rebuilding of Jerusalem that was begun in the days of Ezra would take us to exactly 26 or 27 A.D., harmonizing perfectly so far with the biblical narrative. If Jesus was born in 5 B.C., He'd have been 30 in the very year that Daniel foretold He would be when the nature of that ministry was to begin its undertaking in earnest. I believe we need to be impressed about that. But not only that, 
perhaps this would be an appropriate time to reflect just a moment on the incredible nature of prophecy. May I submit to you that it appears to me that prophecy is one of the strongest platforms upon which you and I can base a confident assertion of the inspiration of this book. No human being can write a book that has in it the detailed prophecies uttered hundreds of years prior to their fulfillment. Those prophecies stated with such minuteness, with such exactness. Look again at the dates. 483 years passed. You and I know that's nearly a half a millennium. And yet, something major happened just as God had said that it would. You'll notice that in Ezekiel 2, verse number 5, God even told the prophet Ezekiel something remarkable concerning this truth. God commissioned Ezekiel. You might even notice twice he stated this. The second time is in chapter 33, verse 33. But on those occasions, God specifically told Ezekiel, You proclaim my power and my word to them so that they'll always know that there's a prophet in their midst. Notice the prophet had information about things that were going to happen in the future. May you and I always be impressed with biblical prophecy. Understanding then that this is a way to appreciate the inspiration of the wonderful Word of God. One final thought might be Revelation 19.10. As we approach the very end of the Bible, on this occasion, that great speaker made this statement. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is to say, the very thing that Jesus revealed was the fulfillment of and yet the continuing development of those marvelous and incredible prophecies of heaven. Maybe it's in light of those that might we note this about those servants of God, the prophets. As you and I look at those last 17 books of the Old Testament, beginning with Isaiah and continuing through Malachi, one by one we see these Truly remarkable individuals, these who spoke as prophets of God. They spoke for God to the people, and quite often the people didn't like what they had to say. The priests, the people, tended to like them much better because they spoke for the people to God. But remember, the prophets spoke for God to the people. Quite often the prophets had messages that were difficult and challenging, repent or perish, as in Amos 4, verses 12 and following. Surely in light of those things, we might well notice the text of Jeremiah seven twenty-five. The prophets were specifically called God's servants. Not only there, in Hosea 12, verse number 10, God there specifically said, I'll do nothing unless I revealed it to my prophets. Today, aren't you thankful to have the words of prophecy? Now, there isn't anybody inspired in the same way that those individuals were. Nobody has supernatural prophecy today. What we have is the revelation of God in His book, the perfect book. These prophets to which we've referred. At this point, that now brings us to one last thought. Perhaps it's already occurred to you. There were 70 weeks in that prophecy in Daniel that 70 weeks would terminate with the finality of the Jewish people for the rejection of Jesus. 
next week there's going to be some rather monumental events transpiring leading up to that event. I'd invite you to come back and study with me on that occasion as we begin to look at the crucifixion and the events that followed it. But for right now, could we not all agree the birth of Jesus, the incarnation if you please, was a truly one-time event. Born of a virgin. That hadn't happened since. We appreciate that it will not happen, of course, again. Born of a virgin He was. When Christ came into this world, He came, of course, to bring to you and me the gospel, the good news of human redemption through His blood. He was born to die. And you and I know that from that birth in 5 B.C., not many years would pass until, of course, He would find Himself on a cross. He would find Himself nailed there, find himself voluntarily put there because he was willing to lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 12. No man hath greater love than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. He's laid down his life for you and me. We, of course, want to be his friends. But notice he said, you're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. John chapter 14, verse 21. Are you his friend? Am I his friend? As we close that slide, might we notice the Lord has come. Of that there is no doubt. And we're going to stand before Him one day in judgment. Are you ready to meet Him? Am I? Are we living a life of wisdom and propriety? Are we living a life of direction and dedication? A life that mimics the claim we made on the day that we made the confession, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Tonight, if there's anybody in the audience who perhaps has never named the sweet name of Jesus. Why not tonight? If you know that there's sin in your life and you know that Jesus died for you and you know what the plan of salvation is, you know enough to become a Christian. You need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His great name and be baptized. But on the other hand, if there's someone in the audience, you now know that His death was preceded by that amazing birth in 5 B.C., a birth that over the years that followed, He was to set before you and me a life of perfection, sinless perfection. He taught the perfect gospel. He taught that which is, of course, going to be the very words with which you and I should be judged. Did He not say Himself in John twelve forty eight, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Don't you want to be living in harmony with it? If your life in Christ is a poor reflection of what it should be, and you know that publicly you've done and said things, you've been places you shouldn't have been, why not come tonight making a statement of confession and repentance to this group that's gathered and beseech us to pray to God on your behalf? He has promised in His Word that He will hear that kind of prayer and He will respond with forgiveness. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to anyone in the audience... We'd be honored to assist you and to help you. Right now, if you would need to come, we would invite you to do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.